today as we're continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount. The good life, what does God have for us? And I think it's fair to say God has for us a world where adultery and lust doesn't exist, that he would desire that for his people, where uh, we stay faithful should we be married to our spouse and we don't run after other people's spouses or run after other spouses, that we would stay married, remain married, have one eye, one heart, one desire for our spouse. I think it's fair to say that in God's world here, those who follow him, that's what he would want. And so that's why we are going through these passages. That's why Jesus is teaching what he's teaching, is to show us just how far outside of the letter of the law we might think we're good, but just so how far outside of that we actually are. So Matthew 5, 27 through 30 is our passage this morning. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members that your whole body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Interesting passage when you think of law, heart, application. Because the application doesn't, it seems to go to physical. It doesn't seem to go to heart, it goes to eyes and hands. And so we'll get to that. But pray with me as we dive into this. Father, give us ears to hear this morning. Focus our attention. Many things in this life can distract us. And honestly, Lord, for most of us throughout a given year, we have gotten comfortable and settled in with certain sins existing in our lives as if they're no big deal. So give us a realization this morning of the deceitfulness of our hearts, our need for grace, Point us to Jesus, lead us to him this morning, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So from, you know, like I've already had the fair warning, but we'll say things today that can bug us, because when we talk about, and you even heard in the video, we talk about, hey, if you watch this too much, what does it do? It affects your heart, and what goes on in your heart affects your speech, and what goes on here affects your actions, and so uh, when we say we talk about these types of things. It's really funny uh, because we don't try to be unnecessarily divisive when we speak about issues of be it adultery, lust, sin, comfortable sins that we have. And people, when you start to meddle, and that's what I think this passage does, when people feel meddled with, they buck up and they start to tell you, well, don't, don't talk to me like that. You can't tell me not to watch that. You can't tell me not to see that. You can't tell me not to listen to that. I'm like, well, the fact that we even get angry when people talk to us about influences and sin and flesh patterns, the fact that we even get angry when those conversations come up reveal to us stuff that's going on in our heart, that we get so defensive about our habits. But let's just be honest. Has anybody here ever lived the perfect day, both with your actions and your thoughts? Does anybody here live the perfect day? Do you just get done with it and go, crushed it? 
I thought everything I was supposed to think, said everything I was supposed to say, did everything I was supposed to do, said hi to everybody I was supposed to say hi to, smiled to everybody I was supposed to smile to, said no to every sin I needed to say no to. Does anybody get through a day and go, 100 out of 100, no doubt. I'm sure of it. God stood before me right now. I'm saying, no problem, God, I got it. Thursday was the day. So can we, with that in mind, with that idea in mind, the recognition that none of us finish a day, and feel as if we got it. With that reality in mind, can we go to this passage and see what it might have so that when we, um, when we say things that might be uncomfortable, we can know we're just talking about what actually exists in us, but we don't usually talk about. We're talking about what's already going on, what we're already thinking, what we're already feeling, what we're kind of embarrassed by. We're talking about all those things, but because when Christians don't talk about that, because it's weird, like we should be beyond that by now. We should know this, we should, I, don't, I shouldn't have that issue, I shouldn't have that sin, I shouldn't feel that way, I shouldn't talk like that, I shouldn't walk like that, I shouldn't look like that. Let's just put all of that arrogance and pride to bed and say, we're always in need of grace. And often, and specifically in issues of like sexual ethics, how we feel about people, how we treat them and talk to them. But I think this is true. I think you would agree, is that we, and when I say we, I mean the church, I don't mean the world, I mean the church, we, believers, disciples, followers of Jesus, have often and uncomfortably gone on to just embrace the ways of the culture when it comes to marriage, sex, and sexuality. I think in many ways, we just kind of go, yeah, that makes sense. But ethics regard to how we relate to one another sexually, is a key part of how God has always asked his people to operate. All throughout the Old Testament, there are laws and God's anger towards misrepresenting him and how you relate to others. Even in the New Testament, I remember the letter, if you don't remember the letter where there's the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and they're all worried about how do the Gentiles live, and there's one thing that they're actually said to abstain from sexual immorality. Like they're said, like it's, it matters how we operate, how we care for one another, because we're all created in God's image. And when you are mistreating a person created in God's image, you are marring it, diminishing it rejecting it for your own selfish and personal gains. So when we get that challenge, maybe you shouldn't watch that. Maybe you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't be there in that place. Maybe, maybe you've let too many influences in. And we go, hey, you can't tell me. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me how to live. I have to form my own convictions about it. So when somebody says, perhaps you shouldn't watch Game of Thrones, we go, well, who are you to judge me? I've sat across the table, and I say the table metaphorically, because usually when I'm in counseling sessions, there's no table, but let's just say there's a table. Where the person has said to me, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know what we're doing is wrong. But you know what? I'll suffer the consequences for it. Because I would have a specific way I would pursue counseling with people. If you wanted me to do your wedding, I'd say, listen, you can't live together. That was a lesson I learned after the first couple of weddings. You can't live together. You can't share a bed. Save that for marriage. If you're a believer, unbeliever, I didn't care. Because I did. I've done weddings. And I remember one time I had to say to somebody, I probably shouldn't have been as okay with how you guys were living as I was. 
you know, the rookie pastor trying to figure out how to navigate those things. But I find it's just like, if you're not concerned about honoring the Lord before you're married, you're not overly concerned about honoring the Lord when you're married. So, like, I'm not going to play that game. And so that's just how I would start to talk to people. They'd have to fill out a questionnaire. We'd talk about it every single time. I remember one time I said, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to do this wedding. I'm not going to do this counseling because I feel like we're just going to waste each other's time. And they would say, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing is wrong. I'm just going to do it. Okay, good luck, buddy. Right? We'll, we'll just save each other the hassle of trying to convince the other that we're wrong. So I've had those kinds of conversations, and I've heard the stories of people who just get tired of being married, and they want to go on to someone else because it's really about their happiness. I'm finally happy. For the first time, I'm happy. I'm like, really? Hmm, okay. That's, that's unfortunate that it took you to get to 40 years old before you ever felt happy, or 45, or 35, or 25. I'm finally happy. Or, and you've heard this too, people who'll be like, hey, I'll look. You can look, but not touch. Don't touch the merchandise. But you can look all you want. I mean, those are like the conversations people had. I remember having a teacher who would say that jokingly. So these ways of talking and watching and looking and speaking and acting, they're not out there. They're in here. And we just kind of settle into it. Jesus is not satisfied with us just looking okay. He's not like, man, I came to make sure you were cleaned up so that when I came, only the dirtiest got kicked out. Cleanness got to stay. So in a world of hypersexualization and marriage minimalization and self-indulgence, we need to take a step back and look at our hearts and let God speak to us about what he sees. And that's what we get in the Sermon on the Mount. God speaking to us about what he sees. So by his grace, he gets to instruct us this morning in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. When he speaks to the law, he speaks to the heart, then he gives us an application. Start with the law, verse 27 of chapter 5. Makes it pretty clear <clears throat> the law's adultery is forbidden. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So many of us in the room have a sense of what that is. You heard Nick explain it. When I talk to my kids, I would say it like this. Adultery is acting married to someone else. That's what it is. When you act married to someone who you're not married to, committing adultery. And for most age groups, that works just fine. And for the rest of you, you get it. You shall not commit adultery. What is he quoting from? He did the Ten Commandments last week. <clears throat> this week he's doing the same. Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. Shall, shall not do it. It isn't some obscure command. It isn't some obscure expectation kind of tucked away in some portion of the scriptures that we don't often read. It's right there. Exodus chapter 20. The Big Ten. It's right there in how God wants his nation to operate. Marriage is a covenant, and we'll get to the definition next week, a definition that I think helps. A covenant union between one man and one woman, and as a covenant, it should be held in the highest regard and given absolute commitment. Not just your best, but God's best in you. Not just, well, I feel okay today, I think I'll stay married. But due to our, our deceitful hearts, 
and due to how we will often feel, we will reduce our spouse to an object. We will look at her as someone who exists to give us fulfillment and satisfy the desires that we have. And when they stop doing that, we will go find those desires met somewhere else. We treat someone created in the image of God as if they are garbage. Like it's okay. Because we want to, we've got to be happy. I've got to be happy. Like that's the most evil sounding happiness I've ever heard. To mar the way someone else was created in God's image. That you would be happy? That you'd be satisfied? Is that really all life is about? Is just getting what you want? Well... Seems unfair, though. Why do I have these feelings? Why do I have, oh, I have this desire? Maybe God should have made us polygamous or polyandrous, right? There are TV shows about that. Why don't we just pursue that kind of life? Why did God restrict it? That doesn't even sound fun or fair. We should do whatever we need to make it easier that we might be able to maintain our marriage vows. But that doesn't reflect the covenant relationship that God has with his people, it wasn't the original created order. In the beginning, God created the male and female. He joined them together. Marriage is following in God's example. That's why he's so zealous for our worship, because the church is the bride of Christ. That even in the relationship the church has with Christ, we get to live out, really more so to us, his faithfulness. We see Christ's faithfulness, Christ's fidelity to us. But still, most of us would probably go, well, I haven't done that. This is what Jesus is doing the whole time. I haven't committed adultery. Never done that. That's gross. That's rude. I would never, ever, ever act married to someone else. I would never share my emotions or my body or my thoughts or my laughter or my secrets with somebody who's not my spouse. I wouldn't do that. Of course not. That's wrong. But then what does Jesus do? A good rule follower says, I'm good. Jesus goes, you're not good. You're not good. So heart. Heart is, adultery begins in our hearts. No heart's in there twice, but that's just how we're going to roll this morning. Adultery begins in our hearts. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Eyes see, hands touch, and while our hands might appear clean, our eyes and heart certainly are not. And with this one statement, Jesus has found all of us guilty. Just like last week. Oh, I never murdered. Have you been angry? Have you yelled at someone because you didn't get what you wanted? Have you diminished them and spoken rudely about them? You're well on your way. Adultery isn't just an action, though. It is a commitment of the heart to betray someone you are in a covenant relationship with. And that type of action doesn't start with you just kind of going, hey, you know what? It's Tuesday. You know what I'm feeling? Feeling like a good heart betrayal day. This is what your heart starts to tell you. This is what you start to tell yourself. You know what? Your needs, your needs just aren't being met. 
Your needs aren't being met. They haven't been met for a while. So I think it's fair. I think it's fair that you look. But your heart's deceitful. He hasn't just even married a long enough time. He's going, I've just been married so long, you know, I need to spice it up. I need to change things around. It isn't just that you uh, have been working a lot. Heart is sick, and you're okay with it. That's the real problem. We are okay with ill hearts, and we just try to live to accommodate it. So you'll see this. There's certainly examples in Scripture of this idea, but one that has come to mind for many in commentaries, and probably you even today, King David. So let's look at King David for a second in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened. It happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The heart committed to the act before the body did happened here and that's what happens in us the book of james you find james you've been through james you're going to find all these connections between what james is saying what jesus says but listen to what jesus said or james says in james 1 14 but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire don't blame god then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, fully formed, brings forth death. The problem isn't someone else. The problem is you. If you're one of the ones going through our uh, what-did-you-expect-marriage mentoring, we have six couples going through that right now. About week, we're heading into week three of it. The biggest lesson that you will learn in that, and I would encourage you next time it comes around to take it, is the biggest problem in your marriage is you. It's not your spouse. The biggest problem at work is you. The biggest problem in your parenting is you. It's not your kids. The biggest problem at your church is you. Why? Because we all want to make it about someone else or something else. And we fail, on purpose really, to ever speak or rarely speak about how we have contributed to the problem. We're the problem. The scriptures will say as much. You're the problem. But we can't find the solution on our own. Now knowing all of this in mind as well, we also need to take into consideration passage like this in first peter be sober-minded and be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour so you have a wicked heart that is prone to wander jesus can change it we have his spirit have the flesh that wants to rebel and satan knows it said before and i've heard this quoted sermon after sermon but um it is often not desire 
or opportunity that prevents us from committing some of the worst sins. It's the existence of both at the same time. It is God's grace to us that desire and opportunity are not always abounding. But often one of those two is. Satan knows, and what is he out to do but to rob God of glory? And if he can hurt a marriage, if he can hurt a spouse, if he can destroy a family, you know what that does every single time? But diminish the glory of God being seen and reflected. So anyone he can take out, any marriage he can knock out, any spouse he can uh, make feel like garbage, he will do. He is not on your side. And so we have our heart, we have our flesh, we have the knowledge of Satan who is out to completely destroy God's glory in this world and do everything that he can to diminish it. We have all that together coupled with a world that embraces all different kinds of views of sexuality and sexual expression and all kinds of different views of marital faithfulness. And you put that all together and you live within that world and what do you get? Honestly, you get a a lot of believers who are embarrassed to admit that they have a heart problem and don't know how to talk about it. So I want to, just two quick things in this as we realize what Jesus has said is, is first, when you feel and recognize what's gone on in you, first, Always run to Jesus. Always run to Jesus. He is the only one. He is the only one that is not going to look at you and say, haven't you figured it out yet? Your pastors might say that. Your family might say that, your community group leader might say that, your D group leader might say that, your friends might say that, your church fellow church members might say that. Jesus is the only one who will respond to you appropriately every time. So when you're in a mess because of your heart, because of your marriage, because of your actions, the best place to go is to Jesus. The best place to go is to Jesus. Then that doesn't mean, that does not mean that there are not consequences for what's going on in your heart and what's going on in your actions. It doesn't mean that. Well, one of the questions that I sometimes get with husbands who have found themselves in pornography is, do I tell my spouse? When do I tell my spouse? How do I have this conversation? And then the months of counseling afterwards to try to regain a modicum of trust that exists because they have decided to give away aspects of their heart and their emotions and their passions to the computer screen or their phone screen. So that is not to say that by running to Jesus, you do not have to live with temporal consequences for what you have done. But the grace of Jesus empowers you and enables you to walk through those consequences because the most significant consequence, eternal damnation, does not exist for you. And so any consequence that isn't that is less than what has already been covered by Jesus. That he has taken the most significant, which is separation from God, and through his body, his work on the cross, he has 
forgiven it. So yes, there are consequences when we run to Jesus because we have to deal with what we've done. But the more humbly and quickly we run to Jesus, the easier it is to walk through those. I have seen a two-year affair. Unknown. Years. I really think it was years. It was a while. Betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. I have seen pregnancies that exist outside of marriage. Where spouses have just given up. And it always hurts. And the more quickly people can contend with Jesus in those situations, the better it goes. But I don't know of any sin that hardens hearts more than sexual sin. I don't know anyone that hurts a marriage more than that. It changes it because it is such a betrayal of the intimacy that should exist between husband and wife. That's why. It is like root level, almost as deep as you can go, betrayal. But you still run to Jesus because there's nowhere else to go. And then you figure out how to walk through it. And you deal with the consequences that might come. And I've heard it said, said this way before. Other pastors have said this. I'm not, I'm not, this is not primary source material, please. But uh, where they'll say, you know, people have different little memes or whatever. And they'll say, you know, religion versus Christianity. You know, but like the religious mind goes, I screwed up. My dad's going to kill me. And the Christian goes, I screwed up. I need to call my dad. And the difference that exists between those two mentalities. Right? The law says, I screwed up. My dad's going to kill me. The gospel says, I screwed up. I need to call my dad. And that's what we need to do, is we need to run to Jesus in these things. And then second, I'd say this, that you need to understand the deceitfulness of your flesh. Like, just, just write it down, tattoo it on your forehead, whatever you need to do to be comfortable with it, but just go, I'm not okay. Like, just never feel settled with how you're doing. And that doesn't mean be worried about how you're doing, but just never, if you go, man, things are going really well right now, like, don't get comfortable there. And don't move in there. Remember Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord can. But never think, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Because that's a time when roaring lions prowl and look and devour. So law, adultery is forbidden. Heart, that starts in your heart. You commit to it here way before you commit to it with your body. You have made a decision. A switch has flipped, but it's flipped here. So then Jesus gets this application, and he has this turn. Remember last week, it was about murder and hatred, and his, he was like, so go reconcile. Why? Because reconciliation cuts the hatred off 
early. The longer you stay angry at a brother or a sister, the more it festers, and it never heals. So go and address it, be reconciled, so that you don't have that festering. So the application here is interesting. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better you lose one of the members, than the members means body parts, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So we end the idea with this, that Christ's disciples take their sins seriously. Like they, they care about not sinning. And that doesn't mean that they just kind of all squeaky clean all the time, but they recognize how deceitful the flesh is. And Jesus even compares it, right? He goes, for it's better that you would be maimed than to miss the kingdom. That's his, that's his point. It's better that you wouldn't have an eye or a hand than you would miss the kingdom. That your concern for the good life that is to come, that your concern for what is to be and your walk with the Lord and your ability to live with him in his kingdom, that you would be so concerned about that that you would consider this world worth forsaking so that you could have the greater gain, the greater reward. He gives two illustrations, the eye and the hand. Because you should desire the kingdom more than your earthly life. But one eye and no eye can still lust. Cut one hand off, you have another. So why, why this illustration? Because if I just remove body parts, it doesn't change the fact that I have a heart issue. But at the same time, we shouldn't just be wandering around cool sinning. We shouldn't just let it settle in. I mean, I seriously, I'll talk to guys, and I'm like, why do you still own a phone? Why? Oh, because everyone needs a phone. I'm like, really? Everyone needs a phone? Not if it's ruining your life. Not worth it. At all. Yeah, but people need to get in touch with me. No, they don't. I mean, you know, just get a really strong string and two tin cans. Do something else. Go as low-tech as you need to go. Is it really worth it that you would have a phone or that you would have internet access or that you would even have a computer? Is it worth it? Why do that? And when we start to go, well, what is not worth it, that's when we get to realize what's really going on in our heart. And that's the conversation that I get to have with people. Turn your phone into a brick. No. Why? Because it messes with my freedom or the fact that I might want to use something or do something or watch something and I want to be able to do that. Well, when we know our hearts, we become aware by God's grace of the significance and the deceitfulness of our heart, we can get more serious about our sin. I talk to people sometimes, they're like, I want to not want to sin. I'm not going to make a decision. I want to, not, I want to, I want to read the Bible, and I won't read the Bible until I, until I want to. Or I, I really want to hate sin, and so I'm praying that I learn to hate sin. I'm like In the meantime, 
you could also, you know, throw your phone in the garbage. Like, like you, could, you, 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 can, you can learn to hate sin, but if it's kind of living in your house and it's the air that you breathe, then you don't even realize how much of it exists and resides within you. So I want you to first realize that there's a serious heart condition that we all have, that we are crooked, and we need a solution that doesn't come from us. That solution is Jesus. Remember, you need a greater righteousness, and through him you get the righteousness of God. You get the empowerment that comes for that, that we can be forgiven for all that has done. Because we sometimes try to manage a heart condition with only externals, and we can't fix the heart that way. So you have to fix the heart, but you also can look at the habits. And when you take your sin seriously, you go, this isn't worth it. Having this sin ruin my marriage, feeling this way, talking this way, looking like this, looking at this, that this does not help. So then another idea there is to desire your Savior more than your sin comes from the Spirit. Jesus shows the higher value of the kingdom. Desire the kingdom so much that you're willing to adjust your life here in order to enter into it so that our desires are appropriately aligned. There's a book by James uh, K.A. Smith, or Jamie Smith, however you want to call him, it's called Desiring the Kingdom, and it's just that. Um, it's different than often what we would read because he's really big on, on, on habits and your affections and how you form your affections. Because the culture is going to train you in a certain way to desire certain things, right? What happens on Monday night in the fall? Football. You know, bum, 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 bum. Like, it doesn't take any time for you to know what's going on. And so you go, like, Monday night, well, i got to watch football. Or it's right now, you know, it, not, no one's watching baseball anymore after yesterday. But, like, baseball is like we have all these ways that we feel. Listen, I, I've ministered for nine years, five miles from LSU's campus. You don't think Saturday mornings and afternoons and evenings meant something different to people in Baton Rouge? Like it's the one time a week where you can paint your whole body and not wear a shirt, and everyone's like, cool, man, that's awesome, right? It's, like, it's almost like no, shoot, no, shirt, no, no shoes, no shirt are fine on Saturdays if you're covered in body paint. And so don't think the world is not trying to condition you to feel and act and love a certain way. So condition your heart. Be engaged in the life with your church family. Read the scriptures regularly. Pursue the things of God more than you pursue the things of this world. And then, third, how can you help? Well, you need to remove exposure of your mind and heart to sin. You ever get done with a movie? I have. And you go, why did I watch that? I mean, that was a waste. Not just a waste of time, but a waste of energy. And if anything, I'm leaving feeling worse than I did coming in. And I've also consumed 1,200 calories of icy and popcorn. Like, I'm just, I'm just deflated in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically. But for whatever reason, I value that hour and a half so much so that now I'm at what feels like a deficit. Well, it's because it feels weird to be the one person who's like, I don't really want to go see that. I'm not going to go do that. Don't get content with sin and what you see. Don't settle. Don't excuse. Are you watching things that don't help your heart? Well, then stop. 
Are you listening to things that affect you? Stop. Stop. Don't try to go, well, how can I coexist with this thing that makes me angry? How can I coexist with this thing? Like, how can I learn to manage how I feel about how I hate life, or how I hate this, or I hate this political party, or I hate what's going on in the world? Like, how can I manage that? I'm like, no, we don't need to be in the, we're not in the realm of sin management. Like, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus is in the realm of sin abolishment. That's what he did. And so for us to kind of live lives and just try to handle our sins so that we don't get too many on a given day, just like a balanced sin diet, right? Or we need to have a little more holiness than sin in what we do. So I'm only going to take a little bit from here, and a little bit from here, and a little bit of cable news there, and then that'll be okay. It, it, it's a totally different value than what the Lord's value is, right? Totally different value. And this is where you start to realize that living a good life looks bananas to the world. Why would you not watch that? Why would you not talk like that? Why would you not go there? Why would you not see that? Why would you not care about that? Why would you not be interested in that? When I talk to friends who don't like sports, and people look at them and they're like, why don't you like sports? And like, because I'd like it too much. That's why. Because I'd like it too much. Because I'd care too much. Because I'd be too interested. Because I'd follow it too closely. You're like, well, that's crazy. No, once you start to, to talk to people about how they're processing with the Lord's their hearts and try to diminish their pursuit of righteousness, right living in this sense, when you try to diminish that because you think it's bananas that they would have some kind of boundary on how they spend their time or what they look like or how they talk or where they look or how they speak or what they watch, you go, why would you do that? Well, what are we doing in that point in time? We're actually becoming the religious class that goes around policing how you should and shouldn't act. Rather than being like, that's awesome, how can I help? What do you need from me? Because the Lord doesn't have, didn't just give us his word and his spirit, which is plenty. He's given us one another to help other brothers and sisters where you can say, this is what I'm going through, this is how I'm feeling, this is what I'm seeing, this is, this is what I need so that I can live a good life. And we need people in the church who don't look at us and go, I think you're crazy. We need people who go, I can speak that language. I'm there for you. What do you need? How much time do you need? What conversations do you need? And so I, I have had uh, this, I've, I think I've shared with you before, like when I have these premarital conversations, they haven't happened in spring, but they'll happen, they were happening when you live in Baton Rouge a little more often. Um, and I would say to people, hey, listen, again, back to the marriage thing, I said, I want people to honor the Lord before their marriage and after, and I think one of those ways is to discipline yourself to not act married when you're not. That's kind of important. So I would encourage you to, you know, move out if you're living together. And they'd be like, well, we just can't afford it. And I'll say this, move in with us. One of you move in with us. We won't charge you a thing. We have a bedroom, we have a bathroom, you get your own space, you'll be good. Move in with us. Zero people took us up on it. Zero people. I remember the one, I think this is the one I was the most proud of uh, with this, uh, this one couple. I'm not proud of myself, but proud of them. Because they were like, no, I mean, I think the guy, I'm not sure, but I think the guy almost like, came to the Lord through counseling. Uh, got baptized, like, like, it was just cool to see what was going on in this couple. 
and they started, they were like, man, this is so hard. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to live like this. And, but like they committed. Yeah, we're, we're in. We want to honor the Lord. We want to pursue these things. And so they started removing, pursuing. How do, how do we try to get right before we're married so that when we do that? And I said to them, and I think they were counseled. I think they had friends tell them, get a different pastor to do your wedding. Get someone else. And I was talking to this couple, and a lot of unbelievers in their family. And as, as we were getting there, I was like, can I please, please, would you let me? If it embarrasses you, then okay. But could I please talk about this journey on your wedding day and where you guys got? And the coolest thing, and I think it was the most honoring thing as a pastor to hear, is that husband was like, absolutely. Absolutely. Tell him. Tell him what we processed and how we thought and that we wanted to honor God more than just kind of live conveniently or in a way that's a little easier financially. Tell them. And so to stand there on somebody's wedding day and say, this is what this couple has done to honor their God. This is how they pursued it. And I know you think it's crazy, but it's not crazy. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. He's worth it in every way. Think about it in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Jesus is better, and life with him is better. Reject your sin and run to him.